I don't know if you heard the question there at the end of the video, but the question is, how did life become so routine? How did the days just become dictated by the very next day? And then the narrator says this, there's got to be more than this. Have you ever gotten up one morning and felt like there's got to be more than this? There's got to be something I'm missing. I feel like I'm stuck in a routine and I don't know how to get out of it. And I feel like I might be missing something. Something that I'm supposed to have that I don't, something that I don't know how to get. If you feel that way, you're not alone. In fact, I think it's true that most of us have spent a good amount of our time going through life running on empty. We might not want to admit it to other people, but I think that there are times that our tanks are so low on fuel, we are sputtering to our next destination, just hoping we don't run out of gas on the side of the road. And for those of you that have actually done that, you understand how frightening that is. When you can see the number on the gas gauge getting smaller and smaller, and the number of miles to where you need to get are not getting any smaller, and you're not sure you're gonna make it, we have so much responsibility in almost every area of our life. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent or a guardian or an aunt or an uncle, if you're responsible for a child of any kind, you understand what it's like to bear responsibility. Not to mention the fact that many of us have a hard time adulting. Can I get an amen on that? Right? Here's the problem. It can be easy, if not downright habitual, for us to start tolerate living with less in all of the areas of life. Like we've just come to accept that this is the way it is and it's not gonna get any better. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that besides the obvious exhaustion that comes with it, besides the sadness that we feel like we've missed something or this is it and it's not gonna get any better, we are living a short-changed life because God has desired that we live life full. Full, topped off. Not just, not just let me run in and get $5 more of gas in my tank to make sure I won't run out, but like beyond what we can imagine, full. God desires that we live aware that he can and wants to provide for all our circumstances, that he is a need meter, that he is more than capable of taking care of us to the place that where we're exhausting all our energies worrying about stuff. God says, why don't you stop living less than and start living full? So for the next five weeks, we're going to talk about what it means to live a full life, what it means to live the kind of life that God wants for us, what it means to live full of all that God has to give us, focusing on his abundance, his provision, and stop living in the space of, I wish I had. Have you ever felt that way? Well, I just wish I had fill in the blank. And everybody's blank is different. I just wish I had more time. I just wish I had more money. I just wish I had that thing. I just wish I had those clothes. I just wish I had that piece of equipment. I just wish I had. What if I told you there's a better way to live? Jesus declared that the reason that he came 
was this. I have come that you may have life, life to the full. But the problem is that we're so busy just barely getting by that we've not even considered what life to the full really looks like. So starting today and over the next five weeks, we're going to talk about what the full life looks like, what gets in the way of living a full life, what we can do about it, and what it looks like to experience the full life in Christ. Because I believe that all of us are stuck in a place where we're living less than lives, and God is inviting us to something more. Today in particular, here's where I want to land the plane. I think that there's a key to discovering what it's like to live life in the full. I think if we're going to step into a space that God has created for us, we have to open the door. But only one key will open the door, and that's this. How we see God, how we understand who he is, what our perspective is of the God of the universe, has everything to do with whether we live full or less than lives. And so I want to talk a little bit about today about the emptiness that we feel because we have made God less, because we've made God small, because we don't see him as big as he really is. And the key to beginning to live a full life is recapturing a sense of wonder about the nature of God. I want to share with you two scriptures this morning that kind of serve as the basis for our conversation. And the first comes out of the book of Psalms. And I'll just say up front, if you want to recapture your wonder of God, just spend some time in the book of Psalms. These are songs, sometimes laments, sometimes sad songs, sometimes expressions of, hey God, you're so big, where are you when I need you? But the book of Psalms is dedicated to talking to God about how big and grand he is. It's a confession of, oh man, God, you're huge. And at this particular place in the Psalms, in Psalm 33, verse 8, Scripture says, let the whole earth fear the Lord and let everyone stand in awe of him. I was joking with somebody earlier this week, the, the sermon title for today is Wonderful. I really want to talk about being in awe of God, but it's not good to title a sermon awful. So in, in this moment, awe and wonder have the same sense, okay? What it means. But the command, this isn't, this, isn't, uh, this is an expression to say, look, when you consider how big God is, everybody on the whole earth should kind of just take a step back and go, oh, God, you're... You're awesome. And maybe I've just kind of shortchanged that. But it's not something that's just reverberated in the Old Testament. It comes to us again in the New Testament. And the Hebrew writer puts it so poignantly when he says, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, that means that in the kingdom of God, he cannot be moved. His kingdom cannot be moved. It can't be shaken. You will face Trials in your life, but nothing that you endure will shake the kingdom of God because we are receiving this gift from God of an unshakable kingdom. The writer says, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. The Hebrew writer suggests that one of the ways that God finds joy 
with his children is that we have a, an understanding of how awesome God is. When I grew up, we sang a Rich Mullins song all the time. Our God is an awesome God. We had movements and everything to it, right? But here's the problem. We've reduced our awe of God to lyrics and songs, and we're not living into what it means that God is awesome. When was the last time you stood in awe of God? Just take a minute and think. When is the last time that you were really in awe, you marveled, you were totally mystified by God? Maybe like me, it's when you're in a place like the Smoky Mountains, where maybe you can't see what I saw in that picture, but the sun was setting and the mist was laying low in the valley. We were up high on a mountain driving out a gravel road on the backside of a section of the, of the park that's very difficult to get out of. And we came to a gap in the space, and as the sun was setting, you could see how vast, how big God's hand was. Or maybe for you it's not the mountains, maybe it's the coast. Maybe when you look at the waters crashing onto the shore, you are aware of how big God is. Or maybe for you, it's when you consider the starry host. One of my favorite images in all of astronomical photography, I got that out, is this picture called the eye of God. Somewhere in the span of all of the galaxies, this is staring out from space as if God is looking at all of us and say, see what I made? I can see you too. Or maybe you enjoy just kind of living in the host of color that God provides. I don't know if you've ever driven by a field of wildflowers, but only God can paint those kind of colors. Maybe you're a sunrise or a sunset kind of person. But when was the last time you saw something and it made you go, oh, hang on. God is really big, and I am not. God is amazing and incredible, and I probably have taken that for granted. Here's the challenge, friends. So often when we think about the awe of God, we are too focused on what God has done and not enough on who God is. When we hold God in awe, when we marvel at his works or wonder at what he has done, it's almost always attached to something God has made or done. So very little of the time do we marvel about who God is. Think about it. Maybe the last time you stood in awe of God was when healing came when doctors said it couldn't. When divine healing came and doctors said it was impossible and God said, no, it's not. I'm the great physician of all time. You just watch. Or maybe it was when some unexpected financial provision came into your life at a time where you didn't know how you were going to make it. And God provided for you. And your eyes were open to how generous and abundant God really is. And you were like, oh God. But see, even then, with healing, with provision, it's always attached to something that God does. 
And God says, listen, I can do a lot of things, but I want you to stand in awe of who I am because of who I am and not just what I do. If you would consider for just a minute some of the things about the nature of God, maybe if we would take the time to consider, we actually would be amazed. Did you know that God is omnipotent? Do you know that means he's all-powerful all the time? There is no power greater than him. So no matter how beat down we get, no matter how convinced we are that we are going under and there's no way out, we worship a God who has more power than that. Do you know that God is omnipresent, which means he's everywhere all the time? He's not just here in this worship service. He's not just all across Mount Carmel. He's with people that don't even know that he's with them. He's in third world countries with people who haven't even acknowledged that he exists. He's everywhere all the time. Do you know he's omniscient and he knows all things? Everything that's running through your mind and the list of things you're thinking about that you need to do after church, but you feel guilty about it because you feel like you should be listening to what we're talking about right now. He knows. You can't fake out God. But if you stop to think about how big he is, how, the, how he's everywhere, how he's all how he's all-knowing. Maybe the vastness of God would cause you to wonder at who he is. Or maybe, maybe it's none of that. Maybe it's his grace or his mercy. When sometimes we don't get the things that we deserve, meaning punishment, and we do get the things we don't deserve, like grace. Maybe sometimes it's just his unsurpassed loving kindness. That God is able to love in a way we can't conceive of because we're connected to the finite. And everything for us is tangible. And I will love you when you meet my needs or I will love you when you meet my expectations. And God just says, hey, I just love you. Maybe if you consider for a moment the way that God loves, the way who he is, you might be consumed with the overwhelming kindness of God, and that might cause you to wonder at who he is. Or maybe, maybe just considering that in all of the world, in all of the trillion people or more that inhabit this globe, that every time you call his name, he hears you. And his promise is that not only he hears you, but he will speak back, and you should be listening. When you consider that out of all of the people in the world that God has time to hear and care about you, maybe that might cause you to just stop and wonder just a little bit. Do you know that God was so holy, so other to the people of Israel? They were so in awe of who he was, they would not speak or write his name because he was so holy, he was so awesome, they didn't want to defame him in any way. They didn't want to profane his name in any way. So when the commandment came from Mount Sinai and Moses came down and said, hey, listen, one of God's, one of God's covenant rules for us is that we don't take his name in vain. Everybody was like, we're just not going to say it or write it. We'll just come up with a code word for how we talk about God so we don't mess this up. And instead of calling him Yahweh, they called him Adonai, which meant Lord, because they dared not profane the name of God. 
His name was so holy. They were in so much awe. And you know, people in our culture use his name as a curse word. Big difference. Big difference. What does it mean to stand in awe? A dictionary definition will tell you it's a feeling of reverential respect mixed with wonder or fear. It's astonishment. It's admiration. A well-known psychologist, Doucher Keltner, says that awe is the feeling of being in the presence of something vast or beyond human scale. It transcends our current understanding of things. To be in awe means that I can't possibly understand it. I can't possibly make it small enough so I can figure it out. It's bigger than who I am. You know what the biblical definition of awe is? To revere, to hold a healthy respect for. My best translation of the biblical definition of awe is comprehending God's bigness in light of our smallness comprehending, or maybe not, God's bigness in light of our smallness. So what is it that we have done then, I wonder? What, what is it that we have done if we are not properly giving God the wonder and the awe that he should hold in our lives? If we're missing it, if we're living less than and we want to live full, and recapturing the wonder of God is the key to the door, that will lead us to the full life. What have we been doing instead? Because we can't know how to get to where we're going if we don't know what we've been doing instead, right? Because right now we're driving in circles. So what have we been doing? I think two things. Number one, I think we have been looking to see signs and God wants us to see him. We've been looking to see the big God moments. Like, wow, did you see how God showed up for that? Did you see what God did for this? And here's the thing. If God is with us all the time, if he knows everything we think, if he's all-powerful all the time, God is present and moving all the time. And sometimes it's not big at all. Sometimes we're so fixed on seeing the big show that we've missed the awesomeness of God in the small. There was a moment when the prophet Elijah was hiding in a cave and God came to meet with him. And a couple of big shows happened, a whirlwind, an earthquake. But Elijah couldn't find him in the big show. Why? Because God was present in a still, small voice. Sometimes it's not about a sign. Sometimes it's recognizing that God doesn't have to show off to show up. Can I say that again? Sometimes God does not have to show off to show up. He is with us all the time. And when we're looking to see a sign, we actually miss seeing him. And Jesus warned people that if you are just looking for a God sign, you're looking for the wrong thing. Because signs also come from false teachers. God doesn't just give us signs. Sometimes other people can put on shows too, and they look so attractive that we get pulled into things we don't need to be. And Jesus said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And that's a problem. The psalmist once said that in spite of all that God had done for Israel and Egypt, they still sinned and did not believe his wonderful works. Here's the thing. Israel got sign after sign after sign after sign after sign. I mean, that God parted the Red Sea for crying out loud. Here is a vast sea that separates them from slavery to freedom. And God says, oh, I got this. 
Let me just part the waters. And oh, by the way, the ground was dry. And here goes almost a million people across the middle of the ocean to them. They got all kinds of signs from God. And yet still, when he asked them to be obedient and keep covenant, they couldn't. So apparently signs, there's something more than a sign. God says, I, I am more than just what I do. You've missed who I am. And if you don't believe that that's true today, watch the NFL. If you don't believe that it's true today, that we are more enamored with amazing moments than with who people are, watch the NFL. It's been some years ago now that a wide receiver for the New York Giants named Odell Beckham made what was then the most famous one-handed catch on the sideline that had ever been made in NFL history. You can watch it on just about every highlight reel. If you YouTube it, you will find it quickly. And as a football fan, I will say it's a marvel how the man grabbed it with his fingertips, somehow wrapped it into his body, got two feet inbounds, and kept possession of the ball before he hit the ground is a miraculous feat. But it's a sad day when we are more in awe of an athletically challenging touchdown catch than we are the mercy and the grace of God. We are big God fans. But as Kyle Eidemann says, God's not interested in fans. He wants followers. Followers who understand who he is and understand that they'll never really understand who he is because he is so big and we are so small. And we stand in awe of who he is, what he has done, but what we believe he can do, not because he's doing it right now, but because our faith is growing in leaps and bounds because we serve a God that is so big. So sometimes we've fixed our eyes on other things and sometimes we've made God too small. If you're not sure that that's true, ask yourself the last time you tried to relate to God and be honest with yourself if maybe you've not just put God in a box a little bit. Because you can put some parameters around him that you can understand. You can make him palatable. Sadly, we treat God like he's condensed soup in a Campbell's can. We just add a little water until it's thin enough and palatable enough to take in. See, if we really started thinking about how big God is, if we really started thinking about how vast and amazing and generous and abundant and all the adjectives that God is, we couldn't handle it. And the problem is we don't want to not handle it because we'd rather be in control. And so the way that we solve needing to be in control with God is that we put him in a box. We've made him our size. And God doesn't fit in any box, let alone one that will fit in our pocket. Pastor and author Tim Challey says that we as human beings cannot be in awe of anything we fully understand. Hold on to that for a minute, because what he's saying is this. If you can wrap your mind around it, you can't really be in awe of it. There's nothing left. You've researched the thing to death. You know it inside, outside, upside, and down. If you know all the stuff, what's left to know? What's left to marvel at? What's left to wonder about? 
God is not able to be understood, but we sure have tried to make him that way. Chalice gives a, an example that at least for the hunters in the room might resonate, but it was so impactful I wanted to share it with you. He said, it's easy to be impressed by watching wild animals in their natural habitat, but they are far less appreciated when they've been caught, stepped, and mounted on the wall. So when we place God in a box, we also see him as far less awesome than he really is. When we catch him and stuff him and mount him on our walls, we have reduced him to the level of a creature that can be fully understood, and God cannot be fully understood. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, just as you cannot understand the path of the wind because you can't see it, or how a child is fully formed in its mother's womb because you're not there every moment of every day. We have cameras that can look inside, but we can't be there all the time. The writer says, as you can't understand the path of the wind or how a child is formed in his mother's womb, so you cannot understand the works of God, the maker of heaven and earth. God has given you a pass. You don't have to understand. He didn't, he didn't create you to recreate him. He didn't make you so that you could refashion him into something that you could chew on. God has always been more than, and we have made him less than. See, here's the thing. God is a mystery to us. And you might like to read a mystery in books, but if you're like me, I was always at the end of the book before I got through the whole book because I couldn't wait to see what happened. I'm terrible about that. You remember those choose-your-own-adventure books? And it would say, turn to page A, B, or C. And I would just hold my finger in the turn to page A, B, or C. And then I'd go to A, B, and C and see which ending I liked best, and I would go from there. That's the way that we engage with God. Which ending will I like best? What do I have to do to make you happy enough to do something for me so that it makes me happy? Well, I'll choose that ending and we'll go from there. And every time we do, we reduce God to a size that we can understand when he is a God who cannot be fully understood. And here's the problem. We have lost our mystery of God in our mastery of him. We have lost the mystery of who God is in our attempt to master him and make him a size and a shape and a way that we can handle. The smaller we make God in our mind, the easier it is to conform him to our agenda and to our ideas, and the easier it is to ignore the things that he asks of us that are hard or inconvenient, and the easier it is to pray and ask him to bless things that if we saw God the way he truly is, we would never ask him to bless in the first place. A small God is a convenient God. A small God is like a genie in a lamp. Just rub that lamp, make your wish, and it'll all work out. It's no wonder that the majority of the world looks at the church and God and thinks that he's mean and uncaring and ungiving because we've presented a God that looks like a genie in a bottle when there is no vessel that can contain our God. So God didn't leave us without a lesson about what happens when we don't respect him like we should. I want to tell you this story really quickly as I 
start to turn the corner on the message. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'll let you go and read it this week. And really, to have some context, you'll also want to read 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7 and also 1 Chronicles 13. So if you want to write those down, go ahead. It's a little homework. But here in sum is the story. The people of Israel, now ruled by King David, after they demanded a king when God said they didn't need one and they got Saul and that didn't work out well at all. And so God chose David as the next king. David says, listen, Jerusalem, the city where I live, this is going to be a place where God resides. We've been wandering like nomads in the desert for decades. And God's been living in a tent and he needs a house. And I'm going to build him one. And God says, it's not your turn. I never said I needed a house. But David did say, you know what? Here's the problem. We don't have the presence of the Lord in our midst. And what represented the presence of the Lord in David's day was something called the Ark of the Covenant. In a very simple way, it was a very special box made of acacia wood that had been overlaid with gold. On the top of the box was a very ornate covering with two cherubim, also covered in gold. It was known as the mercy seat. And this box, which contained the two tablets on which were inscribed the Ten Commandments and, and also a pot of manna that showed evidence of God's provision in the desert, and, and Aaron, Moses' brother, the staff that had budded at a certain time, those things were laid inside this box, and that box represented the presence of God among the people of Israel. Wherever that Ark of the Covenant went, they knew the presence of God went before them. They never marched to go anywhere new. They never went into battle that the, the Ark of the Covenant didn't precede them, right? And so the rules were that only the Levites, the priestly group, could attend to the Ark of the Covenant. There were rings on each side of the box through which they put poles. It was so sacred they weren't even allowed to touch it. They could only carry it by these poles. And there had been a battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines had stolen the Ark of the Covenant. And Israel was devastated because it was the presence of God among them. It represented his presence wherever they were. When the tabernacle, the giant tent, was built out in the middle of the desert where they would go to worship, that Ark of the Covenant was inside the the innermost room of the tent called the Holy of Holies. And one time a year, the high priest would go in and atone for all the sins of the people by splattering blood on top of the mercy seat. It was literally as if God had a throne room here on earth, and that Ark of the Covenant was it. Well, the Ark had been stolen by the Philistines. And through a series of interesting happenings, every time that the Ark landed in a Philistine city, bad stuff was happening. And the Philistines finally figured it out. The God of the Israelites, he's no joke. we got to get rid of this thing. And so one town would send it to another, would send it to another. And every town it came to, bad stuff happened. People were dying and people were getting sick with tumors and diseases. And finally, all of the Philistine leaders came together and went, we got to get this thing out of Dodge. Not like one town to another, like we've got to send this back. And somebody went, yeah, but we've already made the God of the Israelites mad. So let's just give him a sacrifice on the way. And they're like, what are you supposed to do? Like the thing's already covered with gold. What are you going to give to a God that already, his throne's made of gold. What are you going to do? So they put a little box full of golden mice and golden tumors on this wagon that they built. And they put the ark on the wagon with this little thing and they hitched it to two cows and they slapped the cows and said, off you go. And they said, if it goes in the direction of Israel, 
We'll know that God did all these bad things to us. If it doesn't, we'll know we just all made it up in our head. Slap the cows, off they go, right in the direction of Israel. And they're like, whoo, glad we got rid of that thing. Well, some people in a local town see the ark coming, brought by these two cows. And they're so delighted that the ark is being returned to them. They have no idea the backstory, right? But they see the ark and they go get the priests and they say, hey, come get this thing. This is sacred. We've got to let people know. And so it winds up after a long sequence of events in the house of a man named Abinadab. And it sits there for 20 years. Because the people of the first town who saw it come home got so excited, they looked inside to see is the stuff that God said was in there really in there. And because they did not honor God's rules for his throne room, they fell out right there. The lack of awe and respect for God was too much for them. It, it destroyed them. So they put it in this man's house, and they're like, we're not touching this thing. Like, it's, this is a big deal. And King David says, it's time for this thing to come to Jerusalem. It's time for the presence of God to dwell in the city of God. Let's go get it. So he sends some men to go get this ark. He says, it's time to bring it home. And as they are traveling, this group of men... Abinadab and his two sons, Uzzah and Ahio, were guiding. They, have, they put it on a wagon, right? This thing's heavy, and usually it takes a lot of Levites with these special poles to carry it. They're sending it back on a wagon. And as they're guiding the, the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it, Scripture says David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled, right? So you can see this happening. Here comes a cart with some oxen bringing the ark of God back into Jerusalem, and it starts to fall off the cart. And they're like, this is the most sacred thing we own. And this man reaches out just to hold it on the cart. And in the moment that he touches it, Scripture says the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverence. And he died there beside the ark. And some people would say, wow, that's a really harsh punishment. What kind of God is going to strike down a man who's trying to protect this sacred box? Except that when God gave Moses designs for this sacred box, he gave very specific instructions about the nature of the box, that because it represented his presence, this holy other God whose name they wouldn't write and wouldn't speak, because it was a physical representation of his presence in their midst. And they thought he was so holy that there was a certain way that it needed to be cared for. And any act of disobedience in that regard was considered irreverent. Here's the thing. David gets super mad. He's like, come on, God. I'm trying to bring your ark back into your city. This, this isn't very kind. And he says, who's going to be able to do this? I sure can't. And he totally abandons ship. Like he gives up. And finally comes to his senses and begins to think about why this isn't working and recognizes we have not been obedient to what God has asked of us. And so he sends men back for a second time. And scripture says that David said, nobody but the Levites can carry the ark of God because the Lord chose them to do it. None of us have been assigned that job. 
I'm not going to step out of the parameters of the gifting I've been given to do it just because I'm king. I'm not a Levite. So let's go get the people that God assigned to do this and do it the right way. And scripture says that David says it was because the Levites didn't bring it up the first time that God broke out in anger against us because we didn't inquire of him how to do it in the prescribed way. We didn't ask you, God, what you wanted. We took control. We put you in your box, and we decided we would handle it because we forgot you are God and we are not. We made you small, and today we will not make you small. And David sent in an army of Levites to go and retrieve the ark of God and brought it back into the city of Jerusalem into the center of the heart of God's people, where the presence of God resided so that they could worship him in the holy place. See, David got it. God, we made you small, and the consequences for making you small are bigger than we could have imagined. We want a small God, but we pay a big price when we make God small. Uzzah paid with his life. The, the men of Beth Shemesh who tried to peek inside the cover of the ark when it came to town because they were so excited. They paid a price because they made God small. They didn't consider how big, how awesome, how powerful, how magnificent he really is. Scripture says in Psalm chapter 8, it says, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have displayed your splendor in the heavens. From the mouths of infants and children you have established strength because of your adversaries to make your enemy and the vengeful people cease. And when we consider the works of your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained and hung in place, who are we? Who are we that you are mindful of us? And yet you loved us enough, the psalmist says, that you made us just a little lower than the angels. Friends, we are small, but even in our smallness, God has blessed us with responsibility. The psalmist goes on to say, you've given us dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the animals of the land and to be caretakers of this earth that you've made. You think that we're pretty special, but God, as the psalmist says at the end, how majestic, how big, how awesome are you that you would look at little old me and decide that you have something for me to do. So how can we get our wonder back? If there are consequences to making God small, then how do we let God be as big as he really is in our own life? I think there are a few ways, and I'm going to share those with you as I close. Number one, embrace the mystery. We don't like to live where we don't know how it ends. We don't like puzzles where there are pieces missing. Is that not the most infuriating thing? A thousand piece puzzle and you pick up what is the last piece only to look down and there are two spots and one piece. You scour the carpet and you know exactly what that puzzle looks like because the picture is on the front of the box. But it's incomplete, which means it's not okay because that piece is missing. Well, sometimes, friends, God doesn't give us all the pieces, and he does it on purpose. And he invites us to embrace the mystery about who he is. Paul understood this, but you know who else understood it? A man named Job, 
who had so much taken from him, so much removed from him, and yet Job says, can we even fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? Can we really understand, Job says? Can we wrap our minds? The limits of God are higher than the heavens above. What can we do? They're deeper than the depths below. How can we know? The, the measurements of God, essentially, are longer than the earth and wider than the sea. We can't possibly put that God in a box. Paul says it this way to the church at Corinth. Now we see imperfectly as in a cloudy mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. I can't know it all right now. There are things that I will only know when I stand in his presence. And until then, it's okay if I don't have all the pieces of the puzzle. To regain the wonder of God, sometimes we just embrace the mystery. I think the second thing is that we let kids teach us. For those of you who work regularly with children, you understand what it's like to see genuine awe on the face of a child when they discover something for the first time or when they come home and pull things out of their pockets that they have rooted out from the ground and are just thrilled about it and you're like, get that out of my house, right? <laughs> there is joy, there is wonder, there is awe, there is excitement when something unexpected happens that they couldn't fathom. And we spend the rest of our life trying to know everything. And because we try to know it all, we miss the joy of not knowing. Children have much to teach us. The longtime poet and writer Samuel Taylor Coleridge said that children possess something that adults do not. It's called the willing suspension of disbelief. It means that they are willing to believe everything until they find out they can't. Do you remember the first time that your child found out that they couldn't believe something they thought to be true? It's devastating. Because then, if something that you've told them their whole life, even in make-believe, turns out not to be true, then maybe Jesus isn't true either. Maybe God's not true. And the wonder and the awe and the waiting with bated breath for what comes next instead of waiting with impatience and anger because I don't know what comes next. We've lost all the joy. Jesus himself said that it's the little children to whom the kingdom of God belongs. Today I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What's that about? I think part of it's just about the all. About not having to have all the answers. My favorite little kid story, a boy was sitting in a park reading his Bible. His siblings were playing on the playground. His mom was over watching. And he's got his Bible open, and all of a sudden he starts shouting, My God is awesome! My God is awesome! Walking through the park is this older gentleman who's a professor at a university, and he's just he's kind of taken aback by this wild expression from this boy. And he walks over and he goes, Son, what are, you, what are you talking about? He goes, my God is awesome. Have you, do you not know? And he goes, well, exactly tell me why God is awesome. He goes, do you not know the story about how my God moved an entire sea so the nation of Israel could walk across to the other side when they were being chased by Egyptians? 
this very learned professor decides he's going to teach the kid a lesson. He goes, oh, son, don't get too excited. Geologists have done work and discovered that the, the Red Sea at the point of the crossing of the Israelites was really only about 10 inches deep full of water. They, they really just waded across. It's called, also called the Reed Sea, and the reeds were high enough. All at that span, the, the natural bridge which they believed the Israelites crossed, that they, re, they really weren't even up to their knees. The boy was a little confounded. And he looks down at his Bible, he looks up at the man. Mother looks over from a distance and sees her son having a conversation with a stranger and is starting to edge over this way. Kind of satisfied that he set the boy in his place, the man begins to walk off. Out of nowhere, the little boy goes, My God, it's awesome! The man turns around and he goes, Did you not listen to what I just told you? He goes, Yes! But do you know what that means? God drowned the entire Egyptian army in 10 inches of water! <laughs> That's what it means to be in awe of God. Embrace the mystery, let children teach you, and then celebrate what God has done, but don't let it overshadow who he is. Give thanks for all that God has done in your life, for all the ways that God has blessed you and all the people that you know, but do not let your thanksgiving of the things that God has done be more important or more awesome than who God is. I share with you this scripture from Psalm 96 as the worship team comes and offers us an opportunity to respond to the awesomeness of God. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. The gods of other nations are just idols, but the Lord our God made the heavens honor and majesty surround him. Strength and beauty fill his sanctuary. O nations of the world, recognize the Lord. Recognize that the Lord is glorious and strong and give to the Lord the glory he deserves. Bring your offering. Come into his courts and worship the Lord in all of his holy splendor because the whole earth trembles before him. As uh, we respond to God's word this morning, and more importantly, I pray as we respond to the big God that he is and the small people that we are. If you would this morning, as we prepare to sing, would you just close your eyes for a moment? And picture in your mind, whatever it is, the most majestic image you can think of, the, the most beautiful space you can think of. And then as you think of it, would you multiply it about a thousand times? More spectacular. And imagine the presence of God as you hear these words. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe literally filled the whole temple. And seraphim, angels stood above him, each having six wings. With two, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew, and they called out to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts.
house. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out and the temple filled with smoke. And in his presence, I said, woe is me. I am undone because I am a person of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand and he had taken it from the altar with tongs and he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your sin has been taken away and you are forgiven. And then I heard the voice of the Lord. And he said, who can I send? Who will go for us? And in the presence of the awesome and powerful God, he extends the invitation for us to say, here am I. Send me. Will you worship the Lord in whatever position today, standing or seated or on your knees? as you come before the Holy One who is worth all of our worship and praise.